Voice Nation. Greetings, Device Nation. Your home for the only medical device podcast no longer requiring a post-operative PT regimen. Yes, we are going therapy-free. That can only mean one thing. We are going to be talking to Dr. Andrew Wickline today, self-professed hillbilly from West Virginia who just happens to be doing more joints than just about anybody in New York with the lowest complication rate. You're going to want to hang around for that. It's going to be an exciting conversation. This is Kevin Brown, self-professed hillbilly from Alabama. I hope you're having a great day. I know I am. Today, we're going to put a period on the OODA loop we've been talking about in our FBI special agent series, uh, talking about things that we can be doing in our job to make us more special. And this past week offered me an opportunity to do just that by taking my own advice that I offered last week. So let's set the stage here. I made an appointment through all the right channels to meet a surgeon and do some educational things. Just so happened that I was on day three of a prednisone pack for a hip bursitis situation I've been struggling with. More on that in just a second. I had everything there and raring to go. And you know, there's no other way to put this. I got stood up, even though I could clearly see the surgeon's back in his office down the hallway. He did not make his way down to see my product, nor did he see me. And many of you in the audience are right now going, yep, I've had that happen before. The runaway bride, you do this job long enough, this will happen to you. Now let's get back to the prednisone part for a second. My wife had left me a message that very morning saying prednisone can make people pretty touchy, so you might want to be careful today. And you know what? Right at that moment, I was thinking of all sorts of touchy things, like scratch Device Nation into his car right before I peeled off in a spray of gravel, right? <laughs> It wasn't till later I was to talk with other nurses who have been on prednisone before, and almost all of them said, yeah, when I'm on that stuff, I just want to fight somebody. But what I did do, I actually took my own advice. We were talking about SMART criteria last week on our decisions, and that S stood for scratch the car. No, it stood for subject. Subject your decisions to other people. And I had the presence of mind in the midst of my roid rage to call a friend and say, Look, I just went through this and I need advice. And, you know, he empathized that I've had that happen to me before, but he talked me down and said, You know, you need to go back and address it with the scheduling nurse in a calm manner. So I took his advice, took a while to get to the calm part, but I went back in there and I said, You know, I didn't get a chance to see Dr. So and so, and I was hoping for maybe some opportunity in the future to hopefully cross paths with them, shake hands and just say hi and introduce myself. And she was very apologetic. She says, oh, you didn't get to see him. And so then she said, let me put you on the calendar and get you back in. Well, you know what? I came back in and I realized a couple things. Number one, the reason why he couldn't meet with me had nothing to do with standing me up. Number two, truly one of the sweetest guys I've ever met took more than enough time to look at some of the products that I had and at the end of the day said, hey, I really like some of this stuff. Let's do a case together. So I thought to myself, wow, a real life moral of the story from the trenches left to my own devices in that scenario. I think I would have made the complete wrong decision. Just drive away in a funk having never met this amazing surgeon and amazing staff. 
And here's some quick bonus material for you, the director's cut, as it were. The other thing that I realized in retrospect that I did wrong, many, many, many years ago, I had scheduled a lunch with a surgeon. He showed up five minutes before he was supposed to do clinic and said, I'm sorry, I got hung up doing this and that, and I won't have time to see any of your things or really spend any time with you. And I was very gracious, and I said, sure, I hope we can get together some other time. Well, then his PA walked up to him, and I am not exaggerating. They talked for 25, 30 minutes. It took a while to put all the stuff back together that I brought in. So I was a captive audience. They talked about rock and roll. They talked about surfing. It was on and on, and it was excruciating. And I thought to myself at the end of this, you know, maybe this isn't the surgeon that I want to call on. (laughs) But what I did, fast forward to the present, is that I found myself reliving that and juxtaposing that experience as if this new experience was the same, and it was not. It wasn't even close. And and as we talked about that whole OODA loop thing and building on a foundation of truth and not getting bad information and then building on that and making actions that are that are flawed from the get-go, that was something going on inside of me that I didn't think about till later that was aggravating me is that I thought, here we go again. You know, that was a teachable moment for me. Just because something was doesn't mean that something is. What you do today is determined by your last disaster, and that is a bad formula for making the correct decisions in the here and now. So once we've made a decision and acted in the here and now, I guess we're done with it, right? The OODA loop is officially over, right? Well, that would be wrong. I loved what Dr. Howell said last week about saving the x-rays of these patients that didn't do as well as he had hoped. And I thought, as device reps, isn't that what we need to be doing all the time uh, on the good and the bad, right? When we make a mistake, being able to subject it back to the loop, what can we observe from what happened as a result of our actions? Uh, What can we gather from that so that we can make a better decision next time? Conversely, what do we do with the things that actually worked out well? How can we build on that? How can we make fresh observations uh, and continue to build on that foundation? I think that as reps, we can kind of steal that idea from the orthopedic journals of being able to do a constant retrospective, uh, even in real time, right? Just constantly analyzing and looking at and go, what's working, what's not working, build upon what is, discard what isn't. And hopefully just move this ball down to the field in the process, not keying any customer's cars. So as we conclude our look at the OODA loop, I saw a great t-shirt the other day. It looked like the logo from a box of Fruit Loops, but it said OODA loops. I thought, wow, the ultimate inside joke. So let's head out of this segment with three quick thoughts. Number one, there are three steps before acting. It's much better to be slow and thoughtful than to be quick and remorseful. Number two, if you make listening and observation your occupation, you will gain much more than you can by talk. A great quote by Robert Baden-Powell, one of the founders of the scouting movement way back when. Number three, Never, ever make a sales call in the midst of a prednisone cycle. It does not end well. Bruce Banner never made quota. 
One thing that does end well, however, is our conversation with Dr. Andrew Wickline. Let's jump right into it. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for coming on Device Nation to share your story. I, I really look forward to asking you about opioids, therapy-free joint replacement, Swift Path, SCCA racing. But first, let's go back to West Virginia. What put you on the path to medicine? My dad's from a little, little cinder block house in West Virginia, down in the middle of nowhere. And uh, my aunt worked in a lab. And every time we would go down for the summer, she'd bring me along to the hospital and you know, showed me the lab and then uh, taught me how to draw blood. So that was actually my first skill I learned was down you know, in her little uh, hospital. It was one of the jobs I had uh, while in college to help pay for the bills was working at, at uh, one of the uh, blood drawing stations. She'd always wanted to go to medical school, but at the time, being from West Virginia and a woman, you know that unfortunately that wasn't uh, wasn't super acceptable. And so uh, I think uh, she was one of the people who really helped me kind of focus on. I love biology, love helping people, and my whole family's about helping people. So it kind of was a good match. And then when you have no money and the only people in town, I lived in a town in, in Warren, Ohio. You know, there, there, there weren't there weren't that many people in town that. that made great money but you know the a lot of the physicians kids were able to go on vacation and, and i said well i want to go on vacation this seems like a good fit so you know somewhat altruistic but also somewhat realistic i got to pay the bills that's what kind of pushed me into medicine and it's been i've been really happy I, i'm really lucky to have found something that uh so many people were help you know willing to help me mentor me along the way and still mentor me i read that Union College is referred to as one of the hidden ivies. What was your experience like there? You know, I was in their seven-year medical program. I was worried that I didn't have any connections. My parents didn't know anybody that I wouldn't get into medical school. So I, I got accepted into the Union's seven-year guaranteed acceptance medical program when I was in high school. Um, I was, like I said, I was just worried. How am I going to get in? I don't know anybody. I felt like you needed to have a connection. And so if, as long as you kept your grade point average up, you got to stay and, uh, uh, and stay in that program. And um, in my first year, they gave me a pretty good package. And then I wanted to, to play football, but, uh, you know, there were a lot of, you know, they, they, that team did very well that year. And there were, there were you know, a lot of, well, there was definitely some drinking and stuff going on. I didn't seem to fit. So I didn't play. I changed my mind. And next year, my, my, my scholarship, my academic scholarship money kind of melted away. And uh, so I just, I had to work full time. I worked uh, three to 11 shift at Roche Biomedical. Uh, they gave me a job. And then on the weekends, I worked at Albany Med doing uh, stat chemistry. So uh, there was no partying after that. <laughs> it was just, <laughs> it was just work, 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 and then get the, uh, you get the schoolwork done. But I liked the campus. Uh, I was really, uh, a lot of great uh, teachers and professors who helped me along the way. You went on to Albany Medical College. Uh, I didn't realize this. It's one of the oldest medical schools in the nation. Dr. James Salisbury graduated from there, and he was the inventor of the Salisbury steak. What was your experience like there, and, and what was the point where you said, okay, I, I know I want to be a, a physician, but orthopedics is what I want to do? You know, when I decided around 13 or so I was going to be a physician, and I was going to start applying to those advanced programs. I, um, you know, I, I I just looked at the there was a doctor in the ER down in uh, West Virginia, 
And he did everything. He delivered babies. He set broken wrists. He uh, took care of heart attacks. This guy was amazing. And uh, I thought, this is this is what I want to do. This is, you know, he, everyone looked up to him and appreciated him. And uh, then when I, I went to Albany Med, and it was a great school, and my first rotation was, was family medicine. And it was nothing like being, you know, like, like this doctor, right? His his practice was a little bit of everything. Unfortunately, the way medicine has changed, um, the family medicine rotation was was really kind of, you know, it, it was challenging. It was all day long trying to convince patients to to get out, stay on a hypertension medicine, work out some more, you know, to control that diabetes, choose better uh, diets, and and um, it, 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 did, it did not have the appeal. And so I was suddenly in a quandary and I saying to myself, I don't, I don't want to do medicine. This is terrible. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I just can't, I can't do this five days a week. And my very next rotation was with the hand surgeon, uh, Dr. Krista Camp in, uh, um, Albany and patients came in, he, they presented with a problem. He offered them solutions, you know, oper- non-operative and operative. They got better. They thanked him. You know, it, again, it's, I think for many of us, we like that kind of a clear cut, you know, reward, right? And sure. from that point forward, I said, "This is uh, I, orthopedics. This makes sense. I I can do this." And and then it was a struggle to get into residency. You know, everybody you know is is in a top group, and uh, you know you have to work hard to to obtain one of those spots. So thankfully, they uh, the team there that I'll be made uh, and the residency department kept me on board uh, for another five years. I was in the capital district for. Uh, 12 years. Cleveland Clinic. I've heard so many good things about that program. What was your experience like there and any any notable stories from your time there? <laughs> it was uh, completely different than Albany. Um, Albany was more of a working man's program. Uh, you know, lots of fractures, lots of ankle fractures. And, and I, you know, we didn't have fellows. Um, you know, uh, we did lots of total joints. You just you did you did everything, kind of you know, very similar to a community orthopedic program, and and, and kind of what I do now, right? I work in a community, but Cleveland Clinic was this specialized and it was a, you know adult reconstruction fellowship, and there's multiple surgeons that only do total joints, and it was definitely a different experience, and you, you felt, uh, um, I don't know, it was definitely a, a different. Um, understanding of, of how things uh, work, a different understanding, you know, I think there's several different schools of thought on how to do joint replacement. You know, there's the New York city school of thought, the Boston school of thought, and you know, now there's different centers in the country that are, you know, but at least for the Northeast, there was those two kind of competing ideas, right? Are you right. posterior substituting or a cruciate retaining, right? Uh, are you a posterior approach? Or are you a direct lateral approach, right? Lester Borden was just amazing. He uh, always had uh, very uh, amusing stories to tell, but he, he could do a revision, have it perfect, and, and right before your eyes. You, you couldn't even understand how it's just happened. And uh, so I'm very thankful for his tutelage. Uh, Victor Krebs was up and coming at the time doing these crazy hard revisions. Peter Brooks, uh, again, with his, uh, he's one of the guys that helped uh, invent the, uh, the augments and so forth. So a really a great uh, team of individuals to, to help me. And then I had a great uh, fellow, uh, Kurt Bakes, who's down in Florida. You know, we, we were, you know, we're, we look like uh, uh, Fred and Barney. In fact, at the end of, 
<laughs> End of our year, we got a picture, you know, with our faces plastered on Fred and Barney's bodies. It was oh, that's fun. awesome! So uh, there was a great group of guys there. I really loved the, the junior residents, uh, many of which are now working as attendees there. So let's fast forward to now. You're a partner at Genesee Orthopedics and Sports Medicine in Utica, New York, over there in Western New York. Owner of Apex Ambulatory Surgery Center. I believe you've been there for 19 years. How do you like living there? Is it the uh, is it the winners that keep you around? <laughs> so yeah we're right smack dab in the middle uh far upstate if you're if you're from new york you know uh, uh south of the bridge you know upstate is the catskills right we're we're well beyond that but not uh not as far as rochester or buffalo so you know i heard a statistic once that you know syracuse which is our neighbor here uh snowiest city in the continental 48 and it is certainly uh lives up to that name you know the other morning you know, I just wake up and now oh, there's 18 inches of snow and you don't think anything of 18 inches. You just you go out and shovel your path to the door and you go to work. You know, most other cities would be shut down with two or three inches and 18 is, is, a, is not a, a st- work stoppage, you know. Um, there's always somewhere in upstate New York, once a year that gets four or five feet, you know, a snowstorm with, with thunder and lightning. It's, it's the weirdest thing. It's it's quiet, but then there's the lightning and the thunder. It's uh, unusual. I've got a pressing question for you. I've been thinking about this all week. Utica is not exactly the, the biggest city up there. No. And, and there you are, the highest volume outpatient specialist in New York State. And, and I've been wanting to ask you this. What's the secret recipe for creating that kind of patient uh, referral velocity, so to speak? First of all, to be fair... It's not a sexy place, like you said. It's not a sexy place to live. Um, it's uh, it's it's. Um, we're also at one of the lower Medicare reimbursement uh, 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 rates. So, you know, if you can work in Syracuse, you know, 15 minutes away, and make 18 percent more, uh, and then if, and that's on Medicare, right? So, therefore, your your insure your commercial payers pay a percentage of Medicare, right? So. You make 18% more if you just live 50 miles away, and it's a bigger city, has an airport. Um, so, yes, there's quite a number of surgeons that, that live and work in Syracuse. But living here, there's not that, uh, there's no there's no financial incentive. It's actually a disincentive. Um, but uh, at the time, uh, I was married, and I, I had a, 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 a limit of how far I could be. And so Utica was the best opportunity for me. Uh, they didn't have anyone really doing things the way that I wanted to do them. And um, uh, so this is where I landed. And I think in many ways that's been a plus. Um, uh, I've been approached by some of the, you know, the you know, great uh, uh, larger groups you know, in, in our surrounding area to come and work with them. And I've wanted to. I want the camaraderie. But the negative is the it, it sometimes squashes the ability to to make your own destiny, choose your own path, and um, you know I, I work nights and weekends. I, the two hours I drive, you know, this morning I had a phone call to Irish Kirschenbaum for an hour, talking about a new project I want to work on and who to talk to and who should I connect with. Um, and and I just feel like in a, in a, no matter you know who's the group, even with the best intentions. You know, everybody, it makes sense from a financial standpoint for everyone to be on the same page doing the same thing. And I think I would have trouble with that. And then I would be the thorn in everyone's side and it would be unpleasant for people. So I decided to kind of just 
completely stay on my own. And as a consequence, the, the things that I think I've changed over the years have drawn patients from, and I just, I just talked to a patient from Maine last night. They're coming seven hours to have joint replacement uh, in two weeks. Um, four weeks ago, I did a guy from North Carolina. I drove 10 hours past 3,000 surgeons uh because you know he, he's in this cost sharing program and no one wants to take care of these patients you know it's they, they can't afford a lot and so if you can give transparent prices which is what i do uh and uh let people know you'll take care of them they are super pleased to to be your patient and they'll travel any distance and uh you know, wave your banner. So it's it's been a great uh, opportunity. I worked with a surgeon who drove all the way to New York to get Dr. Biliani to do his shoulder, paid cash for the privilege. You just don't hear about that very often on the total knee, total hip side. People not only traveling great distances, but willing to pay for it out of pocket. But you're seeing that happen. Yeah, you know, uh, you know for a number of different reasons, right? They're just the insurance has just gone through the roof. So, so many people are trying to find alternatives ways to to you know make a living you know, that one Forbes article talking about the you know the stagnation of the middle class you know may indeed be secondary to the you know the the unbelievable increase in uh, commercial pay rates uh, that have occurred over the last 40 years right so a lot of patients are looking for ways to help save money so that they can they, you know everyone wants their kids to do a little better than they did right? And, you know, just like my dad, my dad had, didn't have a lot of money, um, couldn't, couldn't send me to anything special or, you know, Union College, I paid for that myself. There was no money coming in for that, but he wanted to make sure I had the opportunity. And, you know, so uh, uh, I think a lot of families are, are looking for that and they need that extra, you know, that extra 500,000 bucks a month that would be going towards another premium, you know, for, for no increased care. So I think that's where a lot of people in these cost-saving plans and, and uh, uh, high-deductible HSA plans and so forth. So it's been a privilege to take care of these patients. I charge a flat rate. Uh, we, we have a, on my website, Andrew Wickline, MD, there's a, a self-pay rate so that patients that want to have minimal discharge, uh, post-discharge spend, so most of my patients don't need any therapy, uh, who want to have the lowest opioid need uh, post-operatively in the nation, you know, you're getting... I think a really amazing value, the top tier implants. You know, I do, uh, I include Ayavera, the cry cryoblation, because I believe that it, you know, it works. I had it myself. It's, these are all things that, that you can do and you can do well under $20,000. You know, I'm in a, I was in BPCIA, you know, self convened and, uh, you know, had one of the lowest 90 day costs in the nation. And yet when you try to call your, your commercial carriers and say, let work with me, incentivize me so I can teach others how to do this. No, no one's interested. It's uh, it's crazy. You know, I've heard people describe Blue Cross, and I'm in Blue Cross now. I heard it referred to as a cartel. The your reimbursement, I imagine, hasn't gone up forever, but your costs keep going up. And how do you manage that? Unfortunately, no one wants to write the article. You know, I, I still make a good living. Don't don't get me wrong, but it's because I work hard. It's not like I said. I'm working nights, weekends. I was on a phone call this morning on my hour drive. Let, let, let's break down what what I get paid. You know, uh, two thirds of my practice is Medicare. Uh, so, for let's say for total knee, I get a little more for total knee than total hip. I get one thousand three hundred forty-one dollars for total knee replacement, and that includes ninety days of care. So, my office overhead is sixty percent in a good year. Uh, this year, it's about seventy-eight percent, unfortunately, with COVID. But in a good year, sixty percent. So that, that now I'm down to five hundred thirty-six dollars. 
And, you know, I, I spend about three hours per patient between the surgery and the post-op visit and so forth. So my actually hourly rate for a total knee in a good year is $179 an hour. So, you know, about the same as the Audi mechanic in my town. You know, it's, it's not, not amazing money. You know, but if you look at it a different way, you take your, your 60% overhead, $536. And now you, t- you apply, you know, New York State uh, and, and federal taxes of 46%. And I bring home $289 to fix your mom's knee for 90 days. And this is a surgery that has a, overall, if you take all surgeons, it has a one-year post-surgery mortality risk of 1%. I mean, my, my, my dog's ACL and that surgeon, you know, $4,000. You know, it's, I'm having trouble understanding, you know, where, why there's no value placed on, on this surgery. There is a lot of anxiety, a lot of phone calls, a lot of, hand-holding that is necessary to help patients get through this. It's a tough operation. But ultimately, these patients are happy with the knee. Right? They see a big difference. Um, so, so, yeah, and, and of course, like we said, the commercial carriers, they pay uh, you know 115% of Medicare. So, again, over the last 20 years, I am 40% down. Uh, and, uh, I think it's 37% or 40% for hip and knee. And that's from the AOS uh, um, uh, website or uh, newsletter. Forty percent. Actually, from JOA, two thousand nineteen article. I apologize. How can we take a forty percent hit in our reimbursement over twenty years, and then have great staff to take care of patients? My staff all expect a cost of living raise at minimum. So there's only one way to do it with volume. And so, what happens when you do, you know, tons of volume? You get burnt out. You say, I, I can't do this anymore. Or maybe people make mistakes. Or or maybe people are doing great work, and and there's the perception that they might make a mistake. There's a poor surgeon that got sued because uh, someone had a post-operative uh, complication and they, they based it on the fact that he did too many surgeries. Well, I, I don't know if that's true. It didn't seem like it to me, but in any event, you know, I, I don't want to be in that situation. So my goal, to be fair, is to, is to work with employers uh, who want to do direct uh, contracting with me because of my you know, uh, 1.2% complication rate, because of my lowest cost, because of my lowest opioid use. That's those are my goals in the next five years is to is to be able to be to have leverage over the 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 buka the cartel uh, that continues to tell me my my rate is too high. Whenever the conversation turns to cost containment, most reps break out in a cold sweat. Any uh, takeaways from your experience up there and what y'all been able to achieve on that front? You know, I do think it's important to you know do a uh, a good cost accounting. You know, try to understand where each of the costs are, and 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 try to try to have a, each of those areas. Uh, you, know, you first have to decide which of those costs actually continue to make sense, right? Uh, so, for example, I, I, like we talked about, eighty-five percent of my knees use zero post-op therapy because I have I give them a simple plan, and they actually achieve, you know, about one hundred and ten degrees of motion. We published this by week three on their own. And the academy says that taking the 2018 textbook of Academy uh, Rehabilitation for Total Knee, it, it says uh, it takes 10 to 12 weeks to get 110 to 120 degrees. And we're seeing it at three weeks with no intervention. And the reality is, why are we doing a three-time-a-week, uh, three 90-minute workout session on a knee you just placed you know, a giant you know, cut on and hit with a hammer? You know, we wouldn't do that if you twisted your ankle badly and had a terrible sprain. You wouldn't do a 90-minute, you know... Uh, a cardio workout, right? <laughs> right. So, so that's unnecessary cost. Now, 
down the road when 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 the patients are maybe still having some uh, stair issues or, or gait training issues uh, and they need a little more strengthening, then it's a, a, a better use of the money down the road. Or if that 15% of patients who have anxiety that need that, that mental, you know, you're okay, you're on track, don't worry, assistance that a therapist provides. I think that's really one of the values of the therapy in that first uh, three weeks is, the, is the, um, the calming of the anxiety. Yes, I've seen this before. Yes, I've seen this bruising. This is all normal and so forth. So you have to look, a long answer to your question, you have to look at each of the areas. I, I think what I'm hearing you say is, you know, what about the, the fingers being always pointing at the, the thing that costs the most, right, uh, the implant. On this side of the equation, I would say that there's a lot of R&D that goes into an implant. So I get that a new implant may cost more money. But down the road, that, that R, those R&D costs have, have been paid for. And so I think there's, there's reasonable uh, reductions that can be made. You've already made all the sets for those. Everything's done. You just, you're, you're making a continued profit on that. Uh, and you don't have to pay for the R&D anymore. So I do think there's some potential improvement for that number. Uh, I don't know if I want to be like when I was operating in India a couple of years ago. And my understanding is that the, the government will only pay $600 for an implant. That's, that's the max price, period. doesn't matter who you are. You know, that's, uh, that makes it challenging to have innovation, I would say. Wouldn't you agree? I totally agree. Any thoughts on how the companies uh, across the spectrum are responding to all the changes going on in our joint reconstruction space? You know, uh, I, I guess I see... First of all, from a broad picture, I see several companies that are answering to shareholders more than they're answering to surgeons and patients. And that is concerning to me. It does not put patient interests into outcomes first. I mean, ultimately, if you have a bad implant that, that fails, yes, that's a problem. And I, I think every shareholder and company would say that's a problem, right? right. But but changing, like, say, the post and cam design that's been available for, you know, I don't know, 40 years, changing the, 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 the post and cam design perhaps to something new, that, what does that involve? It involves research. It involves completely, potentially completely changing all of the sets that are placed across the country. And so it, it's a huge, momentous undertaking uh, to do all that. And what does that do? It changes shareholder price, or sh- you know, shareholder value. And no one likes that, right? Particularly when, in my, the way, I, again, I, I may be just a simpleton from West Virginia, but it seems to me that many of the, the, the top brass are there for three to six years. So their goal is to improve share price so that when they leave and they have these stock options, there's a, a b- bigger benefit for them, right? So they're, they're in it for the, the midterm, right? right? Whereas the patient, these implants last 15, 20 years, maybe more. Um, you know, but then what happens? So I, first of all, I look at it and I say, you know, we have misaligned incentives. We, we really, these companies, I don't know if they should be, you know, shareholder owned if they, if they're involved in the, the medical space. I mean, cause it, I just don't, for years I've asked my two companies that I worked with, I want to work with you. I, I've got this therapy free process. I think it's less pain. You know, no one wanted to listen until I moved. I had to move to a completely different company that wanted to listen uh, and said, yeah, that, that makes sense, that there's value there. So I do think companies that are still going to be responsive to the surgeons who have to be responsive to their ultimate customer, the patient, I think those companies uh, are going to be uh, on the rise. 
And I, and I personally think that's why we're seeing so many robots, because what does the robot do? It ties a hospital to a certain implant for at least three to six years, however they decided to pay for that thing. So it can, can it helps them control market share. Am I wrong in thinking that? Am I, do you think I'm, I'm being crazy? Should we not discuss, discuss this on national podcast? I don't know. Uh, just look at it from Haven's standpoint, right? Amazon and uh, Berkshire Hathaway, and um, we're gonna we're gonna do it from you know, three different companies. But yet, each of the companies have to start looking at what's their bottom line, and you know they they've got their hand in in the healthcare industry. And so, if you change value and try to get you know a value driven and get the cost down, some of their companies in their portfolios would would then be affected, right? Right. So there's, there's all these crazy conflict of interests uh, with health that and I suspect that's really why it doesn't ever get changed because there's a lot of money on the table. I mean, billions of dollars. Well, certainly something that has changed around the country is the delivery of care. Tell me about how your patients are responding to what you're doing up there. Well, I, my guy from North Carolina loves it. I mean, he came. He was in a cost-sharing plan. They said, you have $25,000 for the entire episode of care. Let us know when you're ready and we'll, we'll get you the money. He's like, okay, well, who should I use? Well, you have to call people. No one wanted to give him a price. You know, finally giving him a price, 40000 2400 for an initial physical therapy eval. And no one would tell him how much anesthesia would cost. He went to my website, $17,800. Ayavera, anesthesia, surgeon fee, PAC, pain ball. Uh, uh, you know, this custom protocol that I've developed, uh, uh, you know, for no therapy post-operatively. So his entire cost was $17,800 plus a van ride and two hotel nights. That's saying something. And just like you said, you, you want to know what it's like? I am, I'm happy because I got a reasonable rate uh, uh, fee. Uh, my surgery center is happy because they made uh, uh, a reasonable profit. The patient's happy because, you know, he kept his insurance company's cost-sharing program, uh, Sideri. They're happy because he, he came in under the number. Everyone's happy. And I didn't have to deal with the middleman. I want to jump in the clinical corner with you just for a moment. Uh, you've got some experience with kinematic alignment, a topic mm-hmm. that I find many reps find a little murky. Can you explain this philosophy to the audience in a KA for dummies <laughs> type format? Because I, I, I've got a lot of young people that listen to the show and maybe they're hearing kinematic alignment for the first time. And uh, I just didn't want to strip their gears so i did 16 years of computer navigation uh, you know thousands and thousands of computer navigated you know zero degree mechanical alignment total knees right. x-rays look perfect every single time however there are patients particularly the patient with this isolated uh, patellofemoral disease and maybe you know one small little pothole in the lateral condosity say i don't really want to do a you know, patellar femoral replacement this patient's you know, uh, 78, you know, one surgery, want to be one and done, have a happy patient. You do the, the total knee. And again, there's, there's should be normal, there's normal medial and lateral ligaments before you do this operation with a mechanical alignment. You get the parts in and now all of a sudden there's uh, either opening medially or opening laterally. And you say to yourself, well, how can that be? This knee was stable before I, I made these cuts. And it, the only disease she had was really patellofemoral why am I chasing, you know, ligaments now? This, you know, I should be replacing what I put in, or we're putting what I replaced. Right. And it's because we're wedded to this mechanical axis concept, which is everyone is zero degree alignment. 
So the aha moment came. I was invited to uh, uh, the forward you know, vision of, of the Pew Johnson and Johnson meeting. Uh, and so I want to say thank you again for those guys inviting me to that. And I heard a surgeon, uh, Clatworthy out of New Zealand, talking about this. And he showed a slide that said that only 4% of, you know, if you take a whole bunch, take a whole bunch of 50-year-olds without knee arthritis, and you, you do a scanogram, and you look at their mechanical alignment, only 4% are exactly perpendicularly, you know, aligned, perfect, you know, right. perfect, right? So that means 96% are outside of that window. That means, you know, basically, you know, we're, we're trying to make everyone wear a size seven and a half shoe, and, and I wear a size 12. So you try to put me into that seven and a half shoe, that's going to be unhappy shoe. Or in this case, you try to make me have a perfect mechanical alignment, I'm going to have an unhappy knee. So we're, we're trying to make every total knee a seven and a half shoe. That, that doesn't work. That's not what everyone's alignment is, and we there's data showing that. So the question then is, is how far can you go? What's the appropriate amount? So sure. forth. So I have gone down this path, and I must say, I don't see that that swollen, terribly inflamed knee, you know, still at eight and twelve weeks that was mechanically aligned because I'm using kinematic alignment now. What I take out, I put back, uh, you know, with the correction of the whatever compartment, you know, had that you know two millimeter femoral loss and so forth. So we calculate that, we do measured resection, and I, it is amazing how much more stable the knees are. It's uh, amazing how much happier the knees are. You know, my PAs are seeing it. My, you know, I, I'm thankful I've got several PAs who have worked with other, you know, well-respected joint surgeons in the past who are now here working with me. And so they really have a depth of, they've seen me do computer navigation CR, computer navigation PS, and now they're seeing kinematic alignment. And you know, hands down, we all like the kinematic alignment uh, better. The patients just are happier. You don't see the distal iliotibial band, the pes anserinus stuff. What's your cutoff? What what kind of uh, deformity will you accept? And then you reach a certain point. You go, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna kinematically align this all the way. Maybe ramp it back. Are you all in? I would say I'm 95 percent all in. Okay. Um, you know, there are patients with global, you know, instability or, or, uh, you know, this ankylosis of 22 to 55, you know, that's a patient that needs, you know, that needs such release just for me to get into the knee that they're likely going to need some more, uh, mechanical, you know, uh, artificial implant, um, stability. Right. So I know that there are those of those guys out there i mean i worked with doug dennis he's you know he's showing that um you know with with the appropriate osteotome work and osteophyte removal that much of this deformity this extension deformity can be corrected without additional uh distal femoral resection right um you know I, this this whole concept of medial pivot which is what i use now you know i, I operate with lowry barnes he tried to explain it to me but my mind wasn't open to it yet and um I think more and more people are going to see that. You're seeing all the, the, the big players in the U.S. market. They're all uh, going to offer that if they don't already because there's definitely a difference in the anterior-posterior stability. These patients do stairs, reciprocal gait pattern, much quicker than with the post and cam design uh, or CR design, in my experience. Hey, I remember many, many years ago going to Toys R Us and getting Tinker Toys to show a surgeon uh, just about how that uh, medial pivot works uh, using a big, a big wheel, little wheel, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, one side being stationary while the other rolled around. It's really interesting to see how that's that's just really taken off just I mean, in the last five years. I always was worried for my my contractors, you know, with the post and cam design, you know, they need to get back on a ladder and so forth. And I'm telling you, there's a dramatic difference, at least from that standpoint, in terms of their feeling of stability. Mm-hmm. And uh, you just don't see the same. Um, clicking you don't see that same kind of uh, uh, annoying mechanical sensation that you see with other designs so i personally think there's something to it you know i again uh, uh proofs in the pudding in terms of the long-term data but we're seeing you know many of these companies have have data you know that's that's getting uh, uh in the 10 plus years so you know it's out there so i think that's why you're starting to see it from other companies I, i'm a believer in the ka now that the, the knees just aren't as swollen the, the little irritating things that patients would talk about, again, the wrong disability band, you just don't see that inflammation like you used to. One thing that's always fascinating to me about medicine and especially orthopedics is that, you know, years go by and the, the kind of the general consensus, the conventional wisdom lands on something. And then out of nowhere, somebody like Dr. Stephen Howe comes along and, mm. and, and questions it. And, and there you go. Uh, it's just fascinating. He's done a ton of work in this field. I mean, he's a sports medicine guy, right? Yeah. So he's looking at that stability. You know, I, I talked to him many times before I made this decision and then talked to, you know, uh, other people, you know, outside of his data trying to say, okay, is, it, is this data, you know, is it real? Who else has reproduced it? Um, and, and there's, there's a good body of evidence, uh, uh, that, that I, I think I can rely on and, uh, and I'm seeing it clinically. So, but, but he was, uh, talk about brave. He, he really stuck his neck out there, but, but he did it the right way. He's, he's, you know, every single patient, long leg radiograph showing, you know, time after time after time, uh, and showing, you know, and, and even his few failures, here's my failure. Here's what I think I did wrong. I mean, willing to, to be the clinician scientist to help move this forward. I'm impressed because I didn't, I don't think a lot of people were, were terribly kind to him in the beginning. Well-behaved surgeons rarely make history, doctor, and that's the same kind of bravery I'm sure that uh, you had to have to stand in front of all your peers and start talking about therapy-free, right? Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I did it multiple years in a row, and, and every time I, I say it, you know, at, uh, at AUKUS, it's you know kind of met with a snort of derision. But right. you know, we published it now, um, and then Rothman's group has has done it separately. Uh, you know, without any inter- intervention or discussion with me, so it's it's not just me thinking this. It's it's just it's common sense. Again, I just no one has a tibial plateau. Uh, tells a tibial plateau fracture to do lunges and sit to stands. No one tells a, a ankle fracture, ankle sprain to walk two miles. You know, but but literally a ninety minute workout in my area for post total knee one and two weeks post op. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. If I do a 90 minute workout right now, I can't walk for two days. That's about told me. I believe the word you used was uh, overzealous. Yes. Overzealous. I mean, mean, therapists want to make you happy. They they want the patient to come back with great range of motion because they know what you want. And so, you know, over the years, I think they've been indoctrinated. Well, this is what you got to, you know, this is what you got to tell the patient. You got to, okay, bite on this towel. I'm going to sit on your knee now. I'm going to make it bend. And that, it just, you don't need to do it that way. It's not, it's not how you would train a dog. You train a puppy by doing five minutes of, of, uh, training and then they lose interest. Uh, 
and they, you lay him down, have him take a nap, you come back uh, an hour later, you do it again. And that's exactly the way I do it with my patients. See, they do five to eight minutes of exercises an hour, four simple exercises, bending, straightening, ankle pumps to prevent blood clot, a short 10 or 15 uh, foot walk to prevent blood clot and pneumonia, and, and that's it. And the rest of the time you ice and elevate uh, to control swelling because you know fluid doesn't compress. So you've got to control the swelling. Uh, you get the swelling down, the bend comes around, suddenly between day 10 and 14, you're getting 109, 110 degrees. I loved your work in Journal of Orthopedic Experience and Innovation about your experiences. And I, I wanted to ask you about Swift Path because I know that's certainly an ingredient in this recipe. What's that What's that program all about? So back in 2015, I was at AUKUS. Uh, and uh, you know, the year before, I'd heard about outpatient total knee. I thought, that's completely crazy. That's never going to happen. And here at 2015, back at AUKUS, and Craig McAllister is up on the podium and uh, he and, and Ira Kirschenbaum had developed this company where it's a patient engagement platform. We're going to get patients engaged because that's the real, that's at least 40% of the solution, right? It's to, from the neck up, right? If I think many surgeons know if you were to, if it was somehow safe to, to put a patient on a respirator for six weeks in the ICU and just bend their knee once an hour, uh, you know, the knee would be totally fine and, and uh, they would use zero opioids because they would be knocked out, right? And there would be no phone calls to your office. But the reality is you've got to deal with that patient from the neck up and, and, again, keep them from, you know, doing something crazy to the knee. And you have to explain what's going to happen. And that's what Swift Path was about. They said, you know, listen, every surgeon will make their own book, whatever you believe in, and we're all going to have meetings, you know, uh, uh, every quarter or twice a year. And we'll discuss what our findings are. And if 70% of us agree on something, we're all going to add that to the, the magic mix, right? And um, so I, I, I took the book they had I, and I looked at it and I said, okay, I'm, I want to create something completely different. And so I went from the minute that the patient decides they want surgery all the way to six weeks post-op, you know, and try to have a day week by week and, you know, preoperatively and then day by day for the first two weeks and every other day for the next four weeks post-operatively with, with a paragraph of what to expect every single day. And um, that patients love that. They love knowing what normal is. For you, you know, you and I, I mean, how many boxes have you opened? <laughs> 10,000? 10, yeah, a lot. A week, right? Yeah. You know, uh, I'm certainly well over that number. And, you know, for me, when a patient asks me a question, I'm like, of course, that's that's normal, you know. But for them, this is their first time, N of one. They've never done this before. So they need reassurance. And it has to be, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. It can't just be all at once, you know, six weeks pre-op. Here's what's going to happen. And I'll talk to you six weeks post-op. Right. Then you have an unhappy patient. So that's what Swift Path is. It's a way to engage patients, and it's a way that, you know, I'm, I'm about to write my seventh uh, version of my book, again, with more upgrades, listening to what patients are telling me, uh, what's per what's working, what's not working, uh, and then I'm going to add more questions in, in my book, you know, asking for their input so I can, uh, you know, start working on version eight. Yeah, I was just wondering, as you were talking there, any thoughts on kind of globalizing your pathway to, to help others achieve some of the things that you've uh, accomplished up there? So uh, I, I did uh, talk to Johnson & Johnson about this about four years ago. And at the time, I don't think they were really interested in that space. I think now, you know, and with hindsight, especially with COVID, everyone's looking at, you know, how can we take care of patients remotely and so forth. So I think everyone's looking at that space now. Um, I am working with uh, Medacta uh, on this. They have interest. They have, you know, markets in Australia. You know, uh, 
uh, of course, North America, uh, Europe. Uh, so they have they have a lot of interest in the value uh, proposition. So um, I'm meeting with them. We're working on trying to to, to find a, a pathway forward that that helps everybody win. Right? I mean, right. every every company, every hospital, every surgeon. You know, we're all working for a reason. We need to make a profit so that we can, you know, put bread on the table and clothes on the kids. Right? right. So, but it needs to be a fair. You know, it needs to be fair across the board. And it shouldn't be exorbitant either. So uh, yes, we're I'm working towards that. I, I was lucky enough to work in India. Uh, I think it was three years ago now at Dr. Uday Minimi in Hyderabad. Uh, we did their first arthroplasty conference, and uh, they asked me to talk about that. And at the time, every thought, especially in India, everyone thought it was crazy. You know, pre-optimization. You know, the way in India it works. I, I don't know if you recognize this. I didn't. A patient just shows up in the ER, gets admitted. And says, "I want my knee replaced. I've had enough." And then the next day, the surgeon replaces the knee. And there's no coming to clinic and talking about it and having some shots and and thinking about it and getting prepared and optimizing your albumin or your hemoglobin. It's just right. you just show up and say, "I want my knee fixed." And if you refuse, they discharge themselves. They, and there's a hospital every hundred yards there. It seems like you know they go next door to the other hospital and say, "Okay, admit me. I want my knee fixed." And and so. At the time, me talking about this, it all seemed kind of crazy. But uh, Uday uh, and his team there, you know, is actually quite prescient for them, particularly with COVID now. Again, looking at home discharge and not staying in the hospital and home therapy and, and minimizing COVID exposure risks. So, um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of benefit, particularly in countries where, where the you know, the, the cost has to be markedly lower than what it is in the U.S. Speaking of prescient, I mean, therapy-free fits really nicely into that. I have a lot of patients who said, you know, doctor, I wouldn't have it done except that I know you don't make me do therapy, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and get it done. You know, you can do it at your surgery center and there's no COVID there, or you can have a, a safe path um, in my hospital where there's only one entrance for, for patients who are all COVID, you know, negative on testing and, and everybody's, you know, on that safe path corridor. And so patients feel safe because they know they can go home, rehab at home, and stay safe, right? Yeah. So it, it's actually been, you know, this year, I, I think I'm only 35 cases down from normal, uh, which is shocking to me. I love it. A swift path and a safe path. I loved your interview with Dr. Scott Sigmund on the <laughs> Ortho Show. I recommend everybody check that out and subscribe. Your goal, uh, it really jumped out at me, your goal of operating with another surgeon every quarter to pick up tips and tricks. I haven't seen that a ton over my career. Who was your inspiration for doing that? I think, to be honest, it's my West Virginia chip on my shoulder that my whole life I'm second best. So I just feel like I'm 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 always not doing a good enough job, and I and someone's going to do a better job than me, and so I refuse to let that happen. Which means I have to go out and keep operating with whoever the best is. Um, you know, it's no different than racing. When you're racing with your buddies, at the end of the day, it's a plastic trophy. So, you know, it's actually kind of fun when you tell someone else how you, how you got them, how you 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 outbreak them in corner three. You know, uh, and. Uh, because uh, then next time maybe they'll you know maybe they'll get you and it, it makes it more fun more competitive but in any event um i really think that that's what has driven me to do that and then you start seeing the changes in your outcomes compared to your your local uh um, colleagues and you know you, you're hearing patients tell you oh, i my, my friend did this and you know they, they took him six weeks to to recover and here i am at two weeks with no cane and full motion 
you know you're onto something. So you just say, well, this must be working. Let's keep doing it. And um, plus, it's just fun. It's fun to get out of you know your, the hamster wheel. You know, um, I will say Doug Dennis was very uh, uh, clear on that. He said, we're kind. You need to spend at least a half a day a week not seeing patients, working on these other projects to move ahead, or else you will always stay where you are. Um, you know, that, that really resonated with me. Craig McAllister said the same thing. You know, Andrew, I spent a week where I'm not doing, uh, you know, patient care. I'm actually working on these other projects. Um, you know, uh, Lowry was, you know, again, same thing. He's, he's working on all these projects all the time. So, there, you know, Ira, I mean, there's, there's a whole, there's, I, I feel bad. I can't name all the people who've helped me over the years. Sure. Uh, but uh, I will say that I've been very fortunate that most surgeons don't say no. You know, even there's surgeons I haven't operated with, but you know, they give me their number. I call them every so often. I run something by them, and they're they're happy to do it. You know, Dr. Lombardi. I mean, he's amazing that way. Uh, Mike Barron. I went out and operated with him. I mean, um, you know, the list goes on and on. We we're just lucky that most surgeons are very collegial. You know, one of my favorite weeks. We got to talk racing just for a minute. One of my favorite weeks in Myrtle Beach was Mustang Week, and I used <laughs> to just love being out on the road. And I would roll my windows down. There's no radio. I just loved hearing that V8 rumble uh, mm. up and down the strip. And I'm looking at a certain number, 45, as we speak. <laughs> tell me about uh, tell me about your racing career. The one thing my parents did, they didn't have a lot of money. And I was shocked. I was 16 years old. I walk out, and they got me a used 1976 Fire Engine Red Monte Carlo. Had the seven-feet doors, each weighed a ton, and, you know, Rusting off at the hinges because they're so heavy and the swivel seats. And I, boy, I thought I was catch me out, you know. And, and, uh, I, I've always liked cars, but, you know, growing up like that, I was just shocked to even get a car. And of course, you know, I had to get a job to, you know, pay for it. But, you know, nowadays I, I'm just, I'm really, I, I'm just into it. I, I found this little used Porsche. I only had 3,000 miles, eight years old. And, um, uh, guy says, oh, I'll sell it to you for 25K. I'm like, oh, this is an amazing deal for a Porsche. That's, Yes, 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 yes. And um, I had the most amazing summer. And then upstate New York, we talked about earlier, you know, it, October, you know, it starts getting cold and snowy and the, there's no grip. And uh, I had to put it away. And I went into a six-week funk because I was back to my pickup truck. And from that point forward, I was hooked. I, I had to have something fun to drive. And so then I decided I want to do some racing. And so we did uh, rally racing and raced up through Canada I stuck a walk car into a seawall at 90 miles an hour. That was, that was uh, no fun, but you know, we were racing the next day again. And then, uh, uh, in a buying a rally car, we, we rallied throughout the nation. They were second in the nation and our, our, uh, super production group. Uh, uh, that was, you know, crazy. I mean, who gets three or four feet of air underneath their car, you know, That's <laughs> right. the way. exactly. It's crazy. And, um, uh, you know, sliding through the rocks and up the, the hills and, you know, uh, uh, you know, through the ice and snow up in the uh, upper peninsula of Michigan and trying to get your car back across the border and the, the border patrol taking your whole trailer apart at midnight. You know, it's just, you know, there's, <laughs> there's some fun stories, you know? Sure. And, uh, then, you know, I had some, uh, changes in my life, but for five years I didn't do any racing. And, uh, I met, uh, a new girl who's been uh, very, uh, accommodating and, and, and lets me, uh, race occasionally, uh, and encourages me to, in fact, and so we, I started again, and now I'm racing on the track. So I, I race a Mustang. I, I raced Miata for a while, and I also did Mini Cooper, and now I've I bought a Mustang, a 2015 Mustang. And you're right. 
the motor on that thing is glorious. Every person on the track, you know, even if I'm not the fastest out there, they just love hearing it go by. And then uh, we also uh, built a, a Factory 5 uh, uh, Cobra Daytona Coupe, which is a replica of the first uh, car that uh, Shelby built before that movie that just came out. The car that before the Ford GT was the, the, the Shelby uh, uh, Daytona Coupe, which was you know, Ford-powered. And I've got a replica of that, and I raced that as well. And it's, it's street legal. It shoots flame off the side, and I get to drive it to work and race it. <laughs> Wow. We have a lot of surgeons listening to the show and, and you know, we've talked a lot about where this industry is heading and, and the headwinds to use a completely overused word that uh, a lot of us are facing. Uh, I just wondered if you had any specific advice, if I was putting you in front of a small group of surgeons and you had to focus on just a couple things, what would be your, your top three points of uh, advice for them right now? I think if you're a young surgeon, I would recommend trying to stay independent. I think my independence is what gives me the ability to still do some things. If I was employed by a large hospital system, I'd be working for RVUs and I wouldn't, there would be no incentive for me to do better or do worse. You know, the, the right. turnover, as you know, at many of those uh, academic centers, you're doing three cases a day and, and uh, you're sitting in between and it's, it's not, I, I don't know. To me, that's not fun. That's it's, it's just piecework and uh, it's not, you know, really focused on each patient and I'm going to, I'm going to do something amazing for this patient. And, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to listen to what this patient has to tell me so that I can make it better for the, his next knee or, or his wife's knee. So uh, I got to say, stay independent. Number one, number two, uh, I think we need to, to really be looking at national narrow networks of, of top quality surgeons that have low cost, high value, um, uh, low opioid uh, and, and great outcomes. Uh, you know, that's where, you know, I think you're going to help keep costs down. You're going to continue getting great surgeons who want to come into the field because, you know, there's incentive. You can you can make a good living, right? But uh, I really think, you know, the, the, the negative, the one negative to being by myself is that, you know, my book of business isn't big enough. I don't have leverage. And so, um, you know, I'm I'm interested in some sort of national consortium that I can join and create a larger group that allows me my independence, but also I can then have some uh, leverage with hospitals, ASCs, and payers to to have a fair a reimbursement, or you know maybe direct to employers so we we can just get rid of the middleman altogether um, because I, I just don't see the value add on the middleman currently. I just don't see it got a lot of reps that listen to this show too and i know they're experiencing some angst this market's changing and it's just not 1985 anymore and mm -hmm. they're looking at how are they going to uh, be that value proposition to their customers and i know you've seen your share of reps coming in and out of your or if you were advising them on this current climate what would it be well first i'm, I'm very lucky to have had some great representatives come and, and work with me and my team so i think one of the things from a rep standpoint is you try to put yourself into that technician's shoes, the circulating nurse's shoes. What are their pain spots, right? Is it, is it the trays? Is it the, is it the turnover? You know, that hospital maybe in in central sterile they they don't have a big enough cooker, and so you know maybe there's some way to, to for you to be instrumental in making that problem go away, right? You know, when you become valuable to the staff, you know that then it makes it very much harder for both the hospital and the surgeon to say. 
you know, uh, I'm just going to switch to somebody else. Right. So I, 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 it was the hardest decision for me to, to move from my two companies to a new company because I had two great reps. I mean, they just, they took care of things. It was always, always taken care of. But, you know, I let them know, you know, six months in advance, listen, I, I've been trying to work with the, these these national companies. I, I have changes I want to see. I, I need to see these things. I want to help. I want to be involved. And there was no interest from corporate. And so it left me in a very difficult position. What I did as a surgeon is, you know, I, I gave them enough notice so that they could show me otherwise or the company could show me otherwise or or they could at least you know, have time to make an exit plan. Right. right. So, you know, and, and I don't think all surgeons really think that way, but I, like I said, I had two, two great men in this case who uh, helped me and um, I didn't want to let them down. The corporations should be thankful for them. I would have left years before if, if the reps hadn't been excellent. Right. Yeah. So I think uh, making yourself, you know, you know, Getting rid of the pain points, being in the, you know, helping with the the uh, uh, making sure that the templating, you know, disc is already is getting to the hospital on time, making sure that the, the central sterile issues are there, making sure that the the uh, implants are, you know, not out of date and uh, you know in order, you know, just just not having a a, a, um, a glitch, you know, glitches, you know, waste time and create angst, and nobody wants a glitch. So I think that would be, you know. That would be, you know, but again, not just a surgeon. I think sometimes the reps are, they're only, I don't want to say it the wrong way, but they kind of want to kiss the butt of the surgeon. No, you should, you should be a team, part of the team and, you know, yes, help the surgeon, but also really focus on the tech and the circulating nurse. Cause I've seen, I've seen many years now, I've seen some that are, that do that and others that are not nice to the staff. And, you know, for me, this is my team. You got to be nice to my team. You're not nice to my team. I'm not interested in whatever implant you're selling, even if it's, you know, the the Bentley of, of implants. You're a very special surgeon, doctor, to give somebody six months notice. Most of the time we get six seconds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when we look at the surgery schedule and realize the company got changed. Yeah, that's not fair. That's not that's not fair or reasonable for people who have given you good service, you know, and they, I still think, unfortunately, my, these are my friends. I still think they were mad at me. But I think they at least see now, I mean, I'm, I'm able to make some of those changes. Like we talked about, this globalization of therapy-free, you know, I, I tried to give it to my companies, but they, they didn't want to hear, they didn't want to talk to me about it. Dr. Wickline, I, and I told you this earlier, I love the cut of your jib to use a sailing uh, <laughs> analogy. And you're just doing amazing work in our space uh, on the opioid, the ASC front, uh, the cost complication front. And uh, I've been watching you and admiring you from afar. I just wanted to say great job. I appreciate what you're doing. Well, it's uh, kind of like I said the, the Scott, I'm kind of surprised to be in this position. I don't really feel like, you know, again, I've operated a lot of different people. I don't really feel like I'm doing anything that much different, but, but on the same hand, when you look at the data and you look at the numbers, you know, all these little pieces, these 3% here, 5% here, they, when you add them all up, that that's where, where there's suddenly a difference, right? You know, a 1% difference between me and Dr. X, you know, that doesn't mean anything. It could just be error, right? But suddenly when there's a 5% difference in complication rate, well, you know, that's, that's a real difference. And I don't think it's just one little thing to be fair. It's, it's all of the little pieces all added together. So the sum of the whole, you know, 
is, is more than the, the parts, right? Well, thank you again, sir. Yeah, you have a great uh, afternoon, and thanks for inviting me. Wow, thank you so much, Dr. Wicklon, for coming on the show to share your story. What an inspiring conversation. The man is a walking OODA loop, isn't he? From visiting other surgeons to looking at every aspect of his practice, observe, orient, decide, act, loop, go back, make it better, refine it. Therapy. Do we need to do it? Let's change it. Let's look at it. Let's look at everything in the episode of care. What an inspiration. I'm starting to think that might be something I'm going to latch on to is every quarter, just go spend the day riding along with a rep that I really respect just to pick up pointers and learn how to do this thing better. If you have any ideas on making this thing better, please drop me a line. DeviceNation at ProtonMail.com. You never stop changing in this business, you never stop changing in life. So I'm always looking for advice. If you're doing something really cool that has totally changed how you do medical device sales, I want to know about it. Look forward to hearing from you and hope you all have a wonderful and safe week. Device Nation.